Well, good to see all of you this morning. Um, I hope that you've started off with a good season, that it seems like you're in a good season in your life because seasons can go good and they can go bad. You can go through stressful seasons, right? Things can get tough sometimes. Um, and, and that can happen not only for us as individuals, but for our community, for our world around us, for our, for our, our country, for example. A lot of people feel like, you know, America's kind of going through some tough times right now and where's things going to work out? And we think, oh, is this a good season? Is this a bad season? Maybe it's a bad season. How does that work itself out? Well, if you're thinking those things, what we have to share with you today and over the next few weeks will be pretty relevant because we're going to be talking about a guy by the name of Daniel. And he is in a government situation that isn't really a very good situation. Now, in our country, we can say that we are one nation under God, which is a cool thing to say. Um, But understand this, that from Daniel's perspective and from God's perspective, all nations are under God. Whether they recognize it or not, they're all under God. And even though it's cool that we can look back to some Judeo-Christian heritage in our country, the reality is, at the end of the day, the vast majority of people in our country have been secularists, not believers. There's never really been a Christian nation. There are Christian churches, and there is the kingdom of God. Um, And and we're going to look at things from the perspective of God's kingdom today, how there is a a powerful nation, an empire called the Babylonian Empire. And they kind of think they've got it together. And Israel sort of thought they had it together. And we'll learn that neither of those nations really have it together. When it comes to the end of the day, one nation is in control, and that's God's kingdom. And so God is over all nations. Daniel wrote this. We know it because we find out later on. And when he's writing it later, I think he kind of smiled, even though the events that we're going to begin with are pretty disheartening because he knew the end of the story. And we can know the end of the story in our life is going to turn out well, too, if we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Daniel, by the way, he believes in the Messiah, but the Messiah hasn't yet come. But he's looking forward, believing that he will come. And there's no doubt that if he were here when Messiah was here, he would have followed him. Because his heart was there. We look back. We've seen Messiah come. We have all the more reason to follow him as Daniel does. But as Daniel trusts in him, God works in his life. And so he's an example for us. And so we're going to look at today that God favors faithfulness. That's going to be our theme for today. God favors faithfulness. And I'm not going to read it all to you because I'm looking through this thing and I'm thinking if I read this whole thing, that's all we'll do today is just let me read because there's so much here, okay? So just go home and read it yourself to make sure I'm not making it up. And uh, I'm going to read you just some of the highlights, okay? We're going to look at the first first seven verses to start with and I'll pick a couple main verses out of that. Um, God favored them with positions of honor. Starts off and it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Sinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
I can see, well, I'm not going to read the whole thing, right? I mean, because this would go on forever. And there's a, just, this is ancient literature. This is really ancient literature. This is going way back. And some have, have tried to, to say it couldn't possibly be true, but it is. You know, we can take this and look at all the historical events and everything dovetails, not only with the Bible, but with extracurricular writings. The Babylon Chronicles um, are actually about Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, grasp this. Nebuchadnezzar actually writes in there. He's quoted in the Babylon Chronicles. We have that preserved in antiquity. And we can compare that with what's happening in the Bible. And we see that it's, as far as we can see, everything's right on. So we know the third year, as we calculated, would have been around 605 B.C. And we're centering in on a nation, and the nation is Judah. Judah was the largest tribe of the nation of Israel, but Israel had a civil war, and the northern kingdom over a century ago, or about a century ago, had been taken captive. And so now all that's left is Judah. It's just this little kingdom. And out of Judah comes the who? The Judahites. Who do we call them today? The Jews. And so Judah's all that's left. And in Judah, there's a king, and his name is Jehoiakim. So what do we know? What does that tell us? If you know your Bible history, you know that Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah. And Josiah was one of the most popular kings in the history of Israel. But by the time he became king, he was told by the prophet Jeremiah and others that it was too late. Too little, too late. He was trying to reform Israel, but there had been prophecy made back as early as Leviticus chapter 26. And this is why I say it's kind of humbling for us as a nation. You know, we think, well, we're, you know, we have a lot of Christian heritage. God would never let anything bad happen to us. Never let us go through a bad season. But this was God's chosen people. And after centuries, in their case, of not following God and being disobedient, God prophesied, if you're going to do that, I've made a covenant treaty with you, and you break that treaty repeatedly, and you will, you're going to be done. I'm going to close this nation off. I'm going to take you into captivity. That was his prophecy. And he told Josiah, it's too late, Josiah. You're a good man, but everything's set in motion. And he further told him, the Babylonians are the ones that are going to take over. Don't fight the Babylonians. They are my chosen, they're my chosen instrument to make this happen. Now, here's another interesting story. One more story to just kind of tie us all together. Hezekiah was a good king, but he was afraid of the Syrians. And rather than trust in God, he trusted in the Babylonians when they were a young nation. And he invited them to his home. And he showed them all of his treasures. And he said, why don't you guys help me? And when they left, Isaiah told him, and Isaiah 39 is all about this. He said, you didn't trust in God. You trust in the Babylonians. One day, some of your descendants will be taken captive by the Babylonians. And you know what he said? Just as long as it's not me. And he let it go. And that brings us up to date now. Josiah decided that he was going to keep the Babylonians He's going to protect the Babylonians from the Egyptians. So he went out to war. Jeremiah said, don't do it. He did, and he was killed. And now his inept son is the ruler. The Egyptians bullied them some, and then the Egyptians and the, the, and the Syrians gathered together to go and fight against and finally destroy the Babylonians, who are from modern-day Iraq, by the way. But they didn't have the, you know, the airplanes, you know, the jets and the tanks and stuff that they did today. But they, they were coming into town, and they're going to fight each other, and they met on the battlefield. Anybody here a military history buff? You know, ancient military? A bunch of you raise your hands. Yeah, good. Glad to see that. Um, anyway, in 605 B.C. was the Battle of Carchemish, one of the greatest battles in uh, world history, and the Babylonians defeated them. 
and the Babylonians had a new ruler. Nabopolassar had died, and his son Nebuchadnezzar II was now king. These guys, by the way, by the time they were in kindergarten, they were excellent spellers. And probably a lot of it had to do with their names. I mean, just to write your name, you know, you had to use almost every letter in the alphabet. So, so Nabopolassar has Nebuchadnezzar. I don't even know what they went for, for nicknames. I don't, you know, it's just unbelievable. But Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant. And we'll see in the next few weeks, he was one of the great rulers, one of the most powerful rulers in history. So it's one of those deals where dad hands it off to son, and son just takes it to a new level. He wins this big battle. And in the Babylon Chronicle, it says that he then went down to basically check out Palestine. He had an excursion in Palestine. That's all it tells us. And that takes us to where we're at here. And the Bible says what happened. He went to Judah, and he decided... I'm not going to destroy you yet. I'll give you a chance. He gave them three chances before he would finally destroy them in the year 586 B.C. First time he comes to town and he remembers that his ancestors had found, you know, they'd found all this gold there. So he says, I want to check out the gold. And he finds all these vessels that are very valuable and he takes them to his home. And right away, Daniel tells us what was really happening. God determined that he did not want all this valuable stuff of his to be destroyed at this time, and he decided that he would have it moved to Babylon for safekeeping for the next 70 years. And he happened to use Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to move it. Do you get that? God was in control of all this. You think of the things that you've accomplished in your life, and we shouldn't get too proud Because when we stop and think about anything that you have ever accomplished for good has come because God has allowed it to and has been involved in using you in the process. He gave you the gifts and abilities like he gave Nebuchadnezzar to do what you did, but he orchestrated all the events. And that's what this passage, one of the main themes of this whole book is, God is in control, we are not. And so God brings Nebuchadnezzar in, and he takes these, and then it goes, you know, it's, we just stopped there in our reading. He takes this stuff with him, but it goes further. Um, he also took some young boys with him, descendants of Hezekiah, people that were related to royalty, maybe not in line to be king, but people that were of the royal family, and he took these young boys with him. The word used is youth. And Uh, the word here, the Hebrew word for youth, is not precise. It meant that they were at least under 20. And in most cases, these were young boys. Maybe at the most, early teens. You know, so we're going to say maybe early teens. Okay? And he captured them and took them. Why? They were handsome. They were smart and well-schooled. They were the best-trained, best minds in Judah. This wasn't uncommon. In the ancient world, you would capture people that had this kind of training and background because this would help you be stronger. You could take them and use them for you, but if you did that, you had to make sure they were on your side. How did you get them on your side? You deprogrammed them, and you did everything you could to erase from their memory the things that they valued, their political, social, religious beliefs. And so these young boys were taken captive. 
and they were placed under a man called Ashpenaz, who himself had once been a young boy taken captive probably, who had been castrated, who was now an official. He was the chief, and he was to take these boys and train them in basically uh, the Royal Academy of Babylon. And it was a rigorous three-year program. They would study literature, the literature of that day, and had to learn probably three different languages. The main language they learned, and I'll mention this because it's significant here, is Aramaic. Aramaic is hardly spoken anymore, but Aramaic was the language that most people spoke at that time in Babylon. And in this book, a good portion of this book is written in Aramaic. Did you know that? So the Bible is written primarily Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, but Daniel, Aramaic. And Aramaic became such a popular language that it was carried over um, when they came back. The Jewish people, after they'd been taken captive to Babylon, they came back to Israel, and they were still speaking Aramaic. They would speak Hebrew in synagogue, but they would speak Aramaic on the streets. You know what that means? Guess what language Jesus spoke? Jesus spoke Aramaic, and he got it from here. So these boys had to learn all these languages, but they also had to learn things like they had to to study the liver of, uh, of sheep. They had to study astrology. They had to study, um, you know, interpret, the interpretation of dreams. Sounds a little bit like Hogwarts and Harry Potter, right? Um, but they had to study all these bizarre things. They had to study the ways of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were a tribe. And they were the tribe that became bigger and stronger and became the most powerful tribe in Babylon. And the Chaldeans were famous for their, they just, their lust for knowledge. And they were studying it every way they could. And because they didn't know God, they would study all these dark arts. And over a period of time, perhaps some ways unfairly, they became, the, the name Chaldean became synonymous with magician or, or sorcerer. But really, in their own way, without knowing God, they were just trying to acquire knowledge. And sometimes they were referred to as wise men. And several of them from this region came centuries later to bow the knee to King Jesus. We called them the Magi, or the wise men. This is, so these guys were getting the same kind of training. Now, we, we get the kind of training that they're going through, and then uh, they do this for three years, and then they have to go over to the king himself and go through oral exams with the king. Now, this section is concluded with verse 7. I want to read that to you. It says, um, their, their names, by the way, it says, and uh, the names, and, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel is the main leader of the four. He called him Balthazar. Uh, Hananiah he called Sadrach, Mishael he called Misak, and Azariah he called Abednego. Those are the four guys we're going to deal with. Change their names. Not a big deal. People call me different names sometimes. Sometimes I don't like them, sometimes I don't mind. But, but it was a big deal because it was part of the deprogramming process. In, in that ancient world, you were named after the God of your homeland. So Daniel's name meant God or Yahweh, the covenant God of the universe, is my judge. And now he's changed his name so it fits their gods. It was a way to bring them down and deprogram them. It was a way to dehumanize them. And here's something that is very disturbing, but probably true. 
the ancient, the ancient rabbis who studied this passage and the ancient Christians that studied this passage are really basically in full agreement that these men were all, these boys were all castrated. They were made eunuchs. And that's why Daniel never marries and is never said to have any children. How about that for a bad season? And you think you have problems. So one day, these boys are romping around Mount Sinai, Mount Zion, up in Jerusalem, and they're playing with their friends, and they're you know, playing games, and they're going to school, and they're learning things, and they're eating the best food at the table, and they're wearing these comfortable robes, um, and they're sleeping on this comfortable bed. And the next thing you know, their beloved grandfather, uncle, or whatever he was to them, Josiah is dead, and the whole world seems to fall apart. And then in comes the Babylonians with their armor and their swords, and they capture them, and they shackle them, and they march them for weeks until their clothes are tattered and their knees are bloodied, and they take them to this new place. And they say, we're going to make you somebody different. And they start this process of deprogramming. Pretty heavy stuff. But you know what? They hung in there. I wonder sometimes if they were quoting as they fell asleep at night, Psalm 23, and wondering when they would pass out pass through the valley of the shadow of death. What's interesting here to me is they didn't deserve this in a way. They, they were good boys, but they were part of a bad nation. And there were repercussions because of the nation they lived in. Their nation had proved unfaithful to God, and so God withdrew himself from their nation, and their nation collapsed. They were trying to be faithful because they were still faithful, God was faithful to them. And though it looks bad, God is putting them in a strategic position that will change that empire and change things for us forever. I mean, he will set an example for us for, for all posterity. And these will become great men because they follow God. You know, a question that I have for you is... Um, is do you hang in there in hard times? Yeah, I mean, it could be anything that happens to you. I mean, there, we don't have it as bad as these guys, but people have chronic health problems and relationship problems, divorce, loss of a loved one. We have problems in our government, right? You know the government isn't taking care of our water rights and we're not affording school or not getting proper insurance and all these different problems we have. Pretty, pretty minor compared to some of the things we're talking about here, but we have problems. How do we get through those things? How do we get through times when it just seems like it's dark and, it, and uh, the clouds are not going to lift? I've been thinking on this lately. You know, one resolution I've been making for myself is, and it was reinforced by Mitch last week, is that to, to memorize scripture. I don't know how many of you memorized the scripture that um, Mitch did last week, but, but I did memorize it. I, I forgot it, but um, I, I did all right the first day. No, no but I've been, I've been memorizing scripture more. And I'll tell you one of the ones that, and I didn't give this to you to put up, Mitch, because I just thought about this morning, just kind of on, on last minute, because I've been memorizing it on my own. I thought, why don't you talk about what you've been doing, dummy? Um, what's, been, what's been helping you? And, and, and one of the things that's really helped me 
is, um, is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. That's the kind of stuff we need to fill ourselves with when we're going through hard times. And you can't wait for the hard times to come because then you're starting from zero. It's good to have them already here. To start thinking about when you go through hard times that nobody's gone through more hard times than Jesus. To be the God of the universe and die on the cross in shame. Sometimes I think about that when I'm sick and I'm sniffling because I've got a cold. I think, Lord, this is nothing. You've been through it. Why am I complaining? And I, and I fix my eyes on him, and then I think about what it's going to be when I get to heaven. Paul, Paul said this. This is one of the things that helped Paul. Another uh, a, a thing that helped Paul, yeah, I think, getting through those difficult times. Paul says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. Colossians. You know, We've got to put our mind in the right place. And God's going to get us through if we keep our focus on him and on Jesus and think about what he did and allow him to give us the strength to overcome the crisis that we're in. This isn't prosperity gospel. It's not like everything just goes away. Life can be tough, but God can bring victory out of tough times if we trust in him and we can, we can have peace and victory. Now, the story goes on. God favored them, um, favored their health. We'll see in verses 8 through 16. I just want to read verse 8 to get us started here. But Daniel, and, and some of you remember this from Sunday. Anybody remember this from Sunday school, this story? You know, if you go to Sunday school, some of this, yeah, you know, the stuff you've heard about. We'll go into a little bit deeper, though, here in verse 8. Um, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. One of the things I failed to mention earlier, and on purpose, because it really ties in more here, is that one of the benefits that these guys had is the thing that would sustain them and give them strength to get through this dark and difficult time was food. You know, that sounds like a good deal to me. If you enjoy food, these guys got good food. Now, maybe they didn't like Babylonian cuisine. I don't know. But it's, apparently, it was pretty good. It came from the king's table. And so they had the wine from the king's table. Some of you kids are thinking, yeah, mom, dad, you know, what? they were having wine. You know, what's that all about? Well, understand that in those days, water could be dangerous. They were on the Euphrates, so it probably wasn't too bad, but it was habitual for most people to drink wine from the time they were young, but it was diluted. It wasn't like full-on wine that was going to intoxicate you. Um, they, would, they, had, they could make it a little bit heavier for special occasions, but usually for just a drink, it wouldn't have been that, that dangerous. And so these guys are going to get good food is what it basically comes down to. They're going to get good nutrition to make it through, and yet they say no. And this has raised a lot of questions. On the surface, it seems like the reason they said no is because it wasn't kosher, right? You know, you know, Jewish people, it doesn't meet the Jewish law. But wine was not, it was not was kosher. They could drink wine. So it doesn't seem to be a problem. Also, Hosea and Amos prophesied earlier that when they went into captivity, in preparation for captivity, that they would not always be able to eat kosher food. 
They had to eat what was before them to survive. Doesn't seem to be that is the reason. So then the natural answer is, well, this food was probably dedicated to idols, and therefore they couldn't eat it. Oh, good, we solved that one. Problem is, is that they were going to ask to eat vegetables later in lieu of eating this food, and vegetables were also sacrificed idols. Later on in the book, we'll see that Daniel is eating meat and drinking wine, it appears. So he just did this for a season of time. So now we're all messed up. So what does this mean? One scholar, Tremper Longman III, you got to believe the guy. When a guy has a name like that, you just sort of got to believe him. You know, he just sounds like he's a smart guy. Um, anyway, he, I thought he had a good explanation here. You know, what he pointed out was that these guys had really little control over anything. And what's happening is the Babylonians are completely deprogramming them and controlling their lives. And they're at the point where they're even depending on the Babylonians for their survival. And this was a way for them to say, I'm not going to be defiled by the Babylonians. I'm going to trust God to provide for me. And, and I'm just going to trust him and eat just the basics to get by. I'm going to trust him to see if he can supernaturally take care of me. Because I I, there's nothing else I can do but, but, but trust in him. This is a way of being more dependent on God. And that's the basic, however you look at it, that's what it comes down to, is they're saying we're not going to follow men, we're going to follow God. We want our full trust and dependence during this very difficult time to be on God. Now, what's interesting is how they go about doing it, because it's so different than we typically do. Um, they don't have a hunger strike. They don't have a protest. In a sense, they do protest, but they don't broadcast it. In fact, interestingly enough, instead of going out and protesting and then letting their boss and everybody else in the world know that they're protesting when they do it, they go directly to their boss and they ask for permission. Isn't that radical? He works within the system. Now, he may have done it anyway, we don't know, but he goes to Ashpenaz, who is the chief in charge of him, and he says, may I have permission to stop eating the meal that's being given to me and just have uh, the vegetables and water. May we, the four of us, have come together, made a pact. May we do that. And you know what? He has won, we're told that he has won the compassion and support of Ashpenaz by the way he acted and behaved. What a radical shift for us in our culture, you know, where we go out with our fist flying instead of going into the office and saying... Can we work this out? Can I have permission? We come in and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to boycott this today. Instead of going into the office and saying, I'm really upset about this. Could we talk about how I can do this? This is what I'd like to do. He goes about it in a, in a gentle and kind way, tries to work things out. And Ashpenaz is so impressed with his character that Ashpenaz basically says, I don't really have a problem with the idea that much. It's, I don't really like it, I don't, you know, but if you want to do it, just don't, don't let me be involved in it because if things go south, I could lose my head. I kind of like it. So let's let it go. And so he says, okay. So you know, he, just, he doesn't say he can't do it. He just says, don't let me be involved. So he goes to his guard and he says, I've made a pact with my buddies. 10 days, 10 days, all I eat for 10 days, vegetables and water and then see how it goes. Well, the guard has nothing to lose because who eats their leftovers? Right? I mean, he's, 
he's got some extra food for himself. So he says, okay, fine. Okay, we'll let you try it. And they try it, and they're healthier than the others. Now, sometimes people try to think that this ties into a vegetarian diet and all that, but the thing is, they didn't diet in those days. They didn't have the luxuries that we have today. You ate what you ate in most cases just to survive, whatever you could. Um, and they were getting more food than usual is the, the circumstance, and so they're deciding just to trust in this. And God provides for them. By all accounts, they should not have been as healthy as the others who were eating better, more nutritious food, but they were. And it was a sign to them and to the others around them that God was their God and that he was working in their life still despite all this horrible stuff that's being done to them. So it's really, really pretty cool um, you know, to, to see that. And so I, I, think, um, I think the real issue here is that they were men of conviction and their conviction was to serve their God. We're entering a new year. What are your convictions? Do you stand by your convictions? At work, at home, at school? And if you do, how do you go about them? Perhaps, for an example, you decide that you want to have a Bible study at work. You go to your boss and ask for permission. Could you do it before work? Could you do it during the lunch hour? And you invite some people to come. Perhaps as a, you as a husband or wife, you know, we'll say the wife, you, you're, as a wife, you're convicted. You think, you know, we were talking recently about how we're, we have property and soon we, we hope to own that property and God's doing some neat things. And, and you think, you know, we haven't been given, the Bible says you should give a tithe, 10% of your giving. That's a lot of your earning. That's a lot of money. But, but maybe we should trust God with that. Just like Daniel trusted God to provide for him. So we're going to trust God and we're going to give more. So you go to your husband and you say, what do you think? Can we have permission to do this? Can we do this together? And you make that commitment. You don't have to tell everybody. Now you're going to give more. Maybe you decide, I'm not going to date non-Christians. And that's your commitment. And you have others around you that are supporting you. Maybe it is a diet. Maybe you've said, ate a little bit too much over the holidays. Need to cut back a little bit. I'm going to eat less. I'm going to try to buffet my body, make it my slave, get myself healthier for service to God and others. Um, I, I need to cut back in some area. Maybe it's, I'm going to go extreme. Maybe you've got to cut back on your sweets. Man, that's a hard one for me. As soon as I'm done with my Christmas stash, you know. Um, <laughs> maybe it's social media. You know, we had a relative we were talking to over the holidays that was telling us about their daughter who's just going through withdrawals. Because they took away her phone. She just can't function. I mean, just like withdrawals from al- you know, alcohol or, or drugs or something. Because she's become addicted to it. Maybe you need to cut back in that area in your life. If you do these things, you don't always have to announce them. You don't have to draw attention to yourself. You don't have to put it on social media. You basically pray about it, make a decision before God, get permission from people if there are people you need to. And then I would advise you to get at least one, maybe three people around you to make a pact to hold each other accountable, and then you're more likely to do it. That's what Daniel did. Got four, the four of them got together and they said, we're in a tough time. We've got to depend on Gab. This is a very good way to do it. We're not going to eat their food. We're not going to allow them to control us. We're not going to depend on them for our sustenance. We'll depend on God. How can you depend on God more with your personal convictions this new year? And then finally, God favored them above all others. 
And it's just incredible. These guys did better than everybody. They graduated at the top of their class. And Daniel excelled in the interpretation of dreams. Now, some have been bothered by this, some quite a bit, because when you think about it, they were learning divination. They were learning sorcery. They were learning the dark arts. And that's against what the Bible teaches. That's against what the Old Testament teaches. Does that bother you? It should bother us. They didn't have a whole lot of a choice, but they decided to go with it rather than die, basically. You know what I compare it to? It's starting in high school and into college. In public school, at least, I had teachers that were teaching me things that were not biblical, that were not true, and could not be substantiated. But they taught it as if it was fact. And in I, if ordered to pass the class, I had to at least regurgitate it on all my tests. I regurgitated it, I passed the class, never used it, and don't believe in it. And I think that's the situation that these guys were in. Now it concludes, uh, the very end of it, we'll read verses 20 through 21. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, get this, Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters, even those that have been doing it for a long time, the veterans that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is interesting, absolutely fascinating. King Cyrus came around around 70 years later. He conquered the Babylonians and set up the Medo-Persian Empire. And then one of the first things he did is he allowed the Jews to go back to Israel, back to Judah and Jerusalem. Do you understand what's happening here? That's 70 years. So he was probably in his 80s. By that time, the people who had originally tried to deprogram him and so forth were dead. And he was still following God. The people, the nation that had captured him had now been captured. The people who conquered him had now been conquered. And his nation that had been conquered was now being rebuilt. And by the way, Iraq is in existence, but Babylon is gone The only thing left of Babylon these days that we hear about, at least publicly, is the one with the beach blanket where they have a little, you know, they they have the play, right? But Israel, uh, Carrie and I are going to go visit Israel soon. Israel's still there. The kingdom is there now. Isn't that wild? And so we see the irony that God is in control, and he works it all out in the end. Powerful stuff when we see what God does and we look at it from his perspective. Now, when we come into stressful seasons, there is a tendency to either fight or flight or take flight, right? And sometimes you got to fight. You know, your family, you know, you're getting mugged and there's fighting going around. You got to protect your family. Sometimes you got to run. Somebody comes in with a gun in a restaurant, get out of there. But most of the time, you can be like Daniel. Remember what Jesus taught. He said in John chapter 17, verse 16, that we are in the world, but not of the world. We can't get away from what we're part of. So we've got to work with it, and we've got to work within the system. But Jesus said something else that's very intriguing. In in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, he said, Be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, because you're sheep among wolves. And I believe that Daniel demonstrates these two mindsets. He could be very creative and crafty and working around to get God's will done. He worked with people. 
as best as he could. Sometimes you have no choice, but Daniel gives us a great example of somebody who works within his culture to have an impact. Now, how do we adapt ministry to our culture? I'll tell you, sometimes it can be very difficult. And first of all, we need to understand that God is not always telling us exactly how we are to do it, but that he is in control. There's not always right options and wrong options. There are some things that are pretty basic in our culture. You know, clothing. You know, you can dress like the people of your culture to a degree, but not, you know, I mean, you see some of the clothes that's pretty skimpy and so forth. That shouldn't represent us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, You can eat and drink like the people in our culture, but not if you're going to become an alcoholic, not if you're going to, you know, eat to this point of obesity, you know. You see what I'm saying? There, there's some basic things. You can listen to whatever you want to listen to, but you don't want to fill your mind with stuff on, you know, you know demonic rap, you know, or something like that. Um, and, and, you know, you can, you can have your phones in church, but, you know, make sure you turn them off. <laughs> I can only pick on this guy because he's one of my, my good buddies. But, um, but you know, it, whatever it is, you know, you, you can adapt those things. There are some things that are, are pretty generic, or just your own choice. Like, you know, we talked about schooling, you know, and I bring this up every once in a while because I really want us to all cheer for each other. We have people that do public school, people who do private school, people who do homeschool. Guess what? Bible doesn't say what you're supposed to do. There are principles that you're supposed to follow. So you need to make sure you're in the right place. But we need to root and pray for each other. God puts us in different places. We have different decisions like that in how we adapt to our culture. There are good reasons for each, you, those are tough ones, but you have to make those decisions. I can't make them for you, okay? That's not like black and white, this is what the Bible says. But there are things that the Bible says within our culture. You know, like killing a baby before they're born. Extreme sexuality and adultery. You know, we see this all the time. Violence in our culture today. You, you know, homosexuality. Now, the question is, how do we express our faith and how do we deal with these things within our culture? And that's where it gets difficult, right? Um, and I don't have all the answers to that. In fact, I, I think one thing that we see from Daniel is you need to be respectful. Um, I mean, there may be somebody here today, I already blew it because I offended you. Um, you know, maybe you are for some of these things, but, but I, I, don't, I don't apologize. That's who we are. But we need to be sensitive in how we express who we are. Let's understand this. This is, this is a key to Daniel is that God has not called us to establish or create a Christian culture on earth. He has called us to lead people to Christ within that culture. That is the primary thing he does. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great British preacher years ago, and uh, I read a quote by him in the process of, my, uh, of this I thought was really intriguing. He said this. He said that we should not expect unbelievers to behave morally or try to make them. We should expect it of fellow believers, but not of unbelievers. He, he says there, that there is only one message for unbelievers, and that is repentance. Now, understand what he's saying. Um, you know, he's, he's saying uh, some interesting stuff that here. He's saying that unbelievers, we don't expect them to be moral. And we can't necessarily change them. And one of the weaknesses we have in our culture today is that we have had a strong voice. 
Do you know, I hate this, to share the news with you, but do you know how Christianity flourishes? When we're persecuted. That's when we're at our strongest. As Paul will say, when we're weakest, we're strongest. When people see that they're beating us up and we still are loving them, that's when people come to know Christ. When we are demanding our Christian rights, that's when people turn against Christ. And that puts us in a really awkward position today because a lot of our rights are being taken away, and yet the more we yell, the more we turn people against Christ. And so we have to strive to build relationship and be good examples. We still can vote against things, you know, uh, we can still take stands. Some of us may be called to the political arena or maybe form of some social justice or protesting. I'm not always a fan of some of the protesting. A lot of times this can mess things up, but it can work sometimes. We need to work that out ourselves, okay? But the main thing is, is that we, we, can't, we can't force this on people. That's not our job. We need to be holding ourselves to a higher standard, we need to hold ourselves to hold a higher standard as, as believers. Let me give you an example here. If a pastor, this is very relevant, I think. If a pastor takes advantage sexually of a young youth girl in his youth group, the best thing the church can do is keep it quiet and silence it because if other people find out, it will hurt the testimony of Jesus Christ. Agree or disagree? Most churches seems like a lot of churches in the past generation felt otherwise. And now it's coming out. They should have been the first people to call the cops. You see how we do that? So we hold ourselves to a lower standard and we hold unbelievers to a higher standard. Doesn't make sense. The greatest thing we can do for unbelievers is lead them into a relationship with the radical, living God of the universe. Have you come into a relationship with him? When you come into a relationship with him, he'll take care of the rest from there. Can't make them, but we can tell them about Jesus and see what he will do. Have you come to the point where you admitted that Jesus, that uh, you're a sinner in need of a savior? You believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, be chosen to follow Christ and put your faith in him alone? If you have, then, and you want to do that, come and talk to us about that and commit your life to follow Christ. And if you have, I encourage you to tell the other people, we call it sometimes your, your oikos, the 8 to 15 people in your life that do not know Jesus. Um, and just love them. You can't make them. You don't make anybody come anything. But be a Daniel to them. Love them. Despite how they might even treat you. Spend time with them, encourage them, and uh, be willing to let your light and your light shine before them. We began today by talking about a stressful season, and they're going to come. But if we remain in Christ, if we remain faithful to him, he will remain faithful to us, even during the darkest and most difficult times. You know, I can guarantee you this. Daniel did not apply for divination school at the Royal Academy of Babylon. But I'm sure glad he got in because his, he had an impact that has come down to us today to help us know how to better live our lives and to be more dependent on our God. And so we're thankful for this and so much more that came out of that. That's why a lot of times I tell our youth that are thinking about, well, where should I go to college or what should I do for a career? And I just say, you know, God's in control. 
Don't make too much of it. Uh, he'll get you where you need to be if you just follow him. Jesus said it best. He said, um, seek first my, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So seek after God first. He'll take care of the rest. The only thing that brings security to our future is faithfulness to our Heavenly Father. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this example of David, Daniel. We look forward to more. Uh, we're grateful for his life, uh, for his sacrifice, and for his commitment to you. Pray that each of us would either come to know you or commit ourselves more to you as a result this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.